Chapter Twenty Four of the Precipice. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Precipice by Elia Wilkinson Peattie. Chapter Twenty Four. Kate had dreaded the expected solitude of the next night, and it was a relief to her when Marna Fitzgerald telephoned that she had been sent opera tickets by one of her old friends in the opera company, and that she wanted Kate to go with her. George offers to stay home with the baby she said so come over dear and have dinner with us that will give you a chance to see george then you and i will go to the opera by our two independent selves i know you don't mind going home alone butterfly is on you know farrar sings she said it without faltering kate noticed as she gave her enthusiastic acceptance and when she had put down the telephone she actually clapped her hands at the fortitude of the little woman she had once thought such a hummingbird and a hummingbird with one last added glory a voice marna had been able to put her dreams behind her why should not her example be cheerfully followed when kate reached the little apartment looking on garfield park she entered an atmosphere in which as she had long since proved there appeared to be no room for regret marna had of course prepared the dinner with her own hands i whipped up some mayonnaise she said you remember how schumann heink used to like my mayonnaise and she knows good cooking when she tastes it doesn't she i've trifle for dessert too but it must have taken you all day dear to get up a dinner like that protested kate kissing the flushed face of her friend it took up the intervals smiled marna you see my days are made up of taking care of baby and of intervals how fetching that black velvet bodice is kate i didn't know you had a low one low and high said kate that's the way we fool em make em think we have a wardrobe me i'm glad i'm going to the opera how good of you to think of me so few do at least in the way i want them to marna threw her a quick glance ray she asked with a world of insinuation to kate's disgust her eyes flushed with hot tears he's waiting to know she answered but i-i don't think i'm going to be able oh kate cried marna in despair how can you feel that way just think just think she didn't finish her sentence instead she seized little george and began undressing him her hands lingering over the firm roundness of his body he seemed to be anything but sleepy and when his mother passed him over to her guest kate let him clutch her fingers with those tenacious little hands which looked like rose leaves and clung like briars marna went out of the room to prepare his bedtime bottle and kate took advantage of being alone with him to experiment in those joys which his mother had with difficulty refrained from descanting upon she kissed him on the back of the neck and again where his golden curls met his brow a brow the color of a rose crystal a delicious indescribable baby odor came up from him composed of perfumed breath of clean flannels and of general adorability suddenly not knowing she was going to do it kate snatched him to her breast and held him strained to her while he nestled there eager and completely happy and over the woman who could not make up her mind about life and her part in it there swept in wave after wave like the south wind blowing over the bleak hills billows of warm emotion 
her very fingertips tingled soft wistful delightful tears flooded her eyes her bosom seemed to lift as the tide lifts to the moon she found herself murmuring inarticulate melodious nothings it was a moment of realization she was learning what joys could be hers if only marna came back into the room and took the baby from kate's trembling hands why dear you're not afraid of him are you his mother asked reproachfully kate made no answer but dropping a farewell kiss in the crinkly palm of one dimpled hand she went out to the kitchen found an apron and began drawing the water for dinner and dropping marna's mayonnaise on the salad she must however have been sitting for several minutes in the baby's high chair staring unseeingly at the wall when the buzzing of the indicator brought her to her feet it's george cried marna and tossing baby and bottle into the cradle she ran to the door kate hit the kitchen table sharply with a clenched fist what was there in the return of a perfectly ordinary man to his home that should cause such excitement in a creature of flame and dew like marna marna with the tree's life in her veins astir marna of the aspen heart george came into the kitchen with both hands outstretched well it's good to see you here he declared why don't you come oftener you make marna so happy that proved her worthy she made marna happy of what greater use could any person be in this world george retired to prepare for dinner and marna to settle the baby for the night and kate went on with the preparations for the meal while her thoughts revolved like a catherine wheel there were the chops yet to cook for george liked them blazing from the broiler and there was the black coffee to set over this latter was to fortify george at his post for it was agreed that he was not to sleep lest he should fail to awaken at the need and demand of the beloved potentate in the cradle and marna now needed a little stimulant if she was to keep comfortably awake during a long evening she who used to light the little lamps in the windows of her mind some time after midnight they had one of those exclamatory dinners where every one talked about the incomparable quality of the cooking the potatoes were after a new recipe something spanish and they tasted deliciously and smelled as if assailing an andalusian heaven the salad was piquant the trifle vivacious kate's bonbons were regarded as unique and as for the coffee it provoked marna to quote the appreciative talleyrand noir comme le diable chaud comme l'enfer pour comme un ange doux comme l'amour other folk might think that marna had dropped out but kate could see it written across the heavens in letters of fire that neither george nor marna thought so they regarded their table as witty as blessed in such a guest as kate as abounding in desirable food as being indeed all that a dinner-table should be they had the effect of shutting out a world which clamored to participate in their pleasures and looked on themselves as being not forgotten but too selfish in keeping to themselves it kept little streams of mirth purling through kate's soul and at each jest or supposed brilliancy she laughed twice once with them and once at them and they were unsuspicious her friends they were secretly sorry for her that was all 
After dinner there was Marna to dress. Naturally, I haven't thought much about evening clothes since I was married, she said to Kate. I don't see what I'm to put on unless it's my immemorial gold of Ophir satin. She looked rather dubious, and Kate couldn't help wondering why she hadn't made a decision before this. Marna caught the expression in her eyes. Oh, yes, I know. I ought to have seen to things. But you don't know what it is, Mavornin, to do all your own work and care for a baby. It makes everything you do so staccato. And, oh, Kate, I do get so tired. My feet ache as if they'd come off and sometimes my back aches, so I just lie on the floor and roll and groan. Of course, George doesn't know it. He'd insist on having a servant, and we can't begin to afford that. It isn't the wages alone. It's the waste and breakage and all. She said this solemnly, and Kate could not conceal a smile at her daughter of the air, using these time-worn domestic plaints. You ought to lie down and sleep every day, Marna. Wouldn't that help? That's what George is always saying. He thinks I ought to sleep while the baby is taking his nap. But mercy me, I just look forward to that time to get my work done. She turned her eager, weary face toward Kate, and her friend marked the delicacy in it which comes with maternity. It was pallid and rather pinched. The lips hung a trifle too loosely. The veins at the temples showed blue and full. Kate couldn't beat down the vision that would rise before her eyes of the Marna she had known in the old days, who had arisen at noon, coming forth from her chamber like Deirdre, fresh with the freshness of pagan delight. She remembered the crowd that had followed in her train, the manner in which people had looked after her on the street, and the little furor she had invariably awakened when she entered a shop or tea-room. As Marna shook out the gold of Ophir satin, dimmed now and definitely out of date, there surged up in her friend a rebellion against Marna's complete acquiescence in the present scheme of things. But Marna slipped cheerfully into her gown. I shall keep my cloak on while I go down the aisle, she declared. Nobody notices what one has on when one is safely seated. Particularly she added with one of her old-time flashes, if one's neck is not half bad. Now I'm ready to be fastened, Mavornin. Dear me, it is rather tight, isn't it? But never mind that. Get the hooks together somehow. I'll hold my breath. Now see, with this scarf about me, I shan't look such a terrible dowd, shall I? Only my gloves are unmistakably shabby, and not any too clean, either. George won't let me use gasoline, you know, and it takes both money and thought to get them to the cleaners. Do you remember the boxes of long white gloves I used to have in the days when Tante Barcelo was my fairy godmother? Gloves were an immaterial incident then. Never more, never more, as our friend the raven remarked. Come, we'll go. I won't wear my old opera cloak in the street car. That would be too absurd especially now that the bullion on it has tarnished. That long black coat of mine is just the thing, equally appropriate for market, mass, or levy. Oh, George, dear, good-bye. Good-bye, you sweetheart. I hate to leave you. Truly I do. And I do hope and pray the baby won't wake. If he does, come along, Marna, commanded Kate. We mustn't miss that next car. 
They barely were in their seats when the lights went up, and before them glittered the auditorium, the vast and noble audience chamber, identified with innumerable hours of artistic satisfaction. The receding arches of the ceiling glittered like incandescent nebula. The pictured procession upon the proscenium arch spoke of the march of ideas, of the passionate onflow of man's dreams, of whatever he has held beautiful and good. Kate yielded herself over to the deep and happy sense of completion which the vast chamber always gave her, and while she and Marna sat there, silent, friendly, receptive, she felt her cares and frets slipping from her, and guessed that the drag of Marna's innumerable petty responsibilities was disappearing too. For here was the pride of life, the power of man expressed in architecture, and in the high entrancement of music. The rich folds of the great curtain satisfied her, the innumerable lights enchanted her, and the loveliness of the women in their fairest gowns and their jewels added one more element to that indescribable thing compacted of so many elements, all artificial, all curiously and brightly related, which the civilized world calls opera, and in which man rejoices with an inconsistent and more or less indefensible joy. The lights dimmed, the curtain parted, the heights above Nagasaki were revealed. Below lay the city in purple haze, beyond dreamed the harbor where the battleships, the merchantmen, and the little fishing boats rode the impossible, absurd, exquisite music play of Madame Butterfly had begun. Oh, the music that went whither it would, like wind or woman's hopes, that lifted like the song of a bird and sank like the whisper of waves, vague as reverie, fitful as thought, yearning as frustrated love, it fluttered about them. The new music, whispered Marna, like flame leaping and dying, responded Kate. They did not realize the passage of time. They passed from chamber to chamber in that gleaming house of song. This was the best of all to me, breathed Marna, as Farrar's voice took up the first notes of that incomparable song of woven hopes and fears, some day he'll come. The wild cadences of the singer's voice, inarticulate, of universal appeal, like the cry of a lost child or the bleeding of a lamb on a windy hill, were they mere singing, or were they singing at all? Yes, the new singing, where music and drama insistently meet. The tale, heartbreaking for beauty and for pathos, neared its close. Oh, the little heart of flame expiring at its loveliest! Oh, the loyal feet that waited, eager to run on love's errands till dawn brought the sight of faded flowers, the suddenly bleak apartment, the unpressed couch. Then the brave, swift flight of the spirit's wings to other altitudes, above pain and shame. And, like love and sorrow, refined to a poignant essence, still the music brooded and cried and aspired. What visions arose in Marna's brain, Kate wondered, quivering with vicarious anguish. Glancing down at her companion's small, close-clasped hands, she thought of their almost ceaseless toil in those commonplace rooms which she called home, and for the two in it, the ordinary man, the usual baby. 
and she might have had all this brightness this celebrity this splendid reward for her labor the curtain closed on the last act on the little dead chow chow san and the people stood on their feet to call farrar giving her unstintedly their bravas kate and marna stood with the others but they were silent there were large glistening tears on marna's cheeks and kate refrained from adding to her silent singing bird's distress by one word of appreciation of the evening's pleasure but as they moved down the thronged aisle together she caught marna's hand in her own and felt her fingers close about it tenaciously outside a bitter wind was blowing and with such purpose that it had cleared the sky of the day's murk so that countless stars glittered with unwonted brilliancy from a purple-black heaven crowded before the entrance were the motors pouring on in a steady stream their lamps half dazzling the pedestrians as they struggled against the wind that roared between the high buildings though marna was to take the madison street car they could not resist the temptation to turn upon the boulevard where the scene was even more exhilarating the high standing lights that guarded the great drive offered a long and dazzling vista and between them sweeping steadily on were the motor-cars laughing talking shivering the people hastened along the men of fashion stimulated and alert their women splendid in furs and cloaks of velvet while they waited for their conveyances by them tripped the music students who had been incomparably happy in the highest balcony and who now cringed before the penetrating cold among them marched sedately the phalanx of middle-class people who permitted themselves an opera or two a year and who walked sedately carrying their music feast with a certain sense of indigestion all moved along together thronging the wide pavement the restaurants were awaiting those who had the courage for further dissipation the suburban trains had arranged their schedules to convenience the crowd and the lights burned low in the hallways of mansions or apartments or neat outlying houses awaiting the return of these adventurers into another world the world of music all would talk of farrar not alone that night nor that week but always as long as they lived at intervals when they were happy when their thoughts were uplifted they would talk of her and it might have been marna carton instead of geraldine farrar of whom they spoke marna of the far quest might have made this flight unhazarded might have been the core of all this fine excitement but she had put herself out of it she had sold herself for a price the usual price kate would not go so far as to say that a birthright had been sold for a mess of pottage but ray mccrae's stock was far below par at that moment yet ray as she admitted would not doom her to a life of monotony and heavy toil with him she would have the free and useful the amusing and excursive life of an american woman married to a man of wealth no her program would not be a petty one and yet do take a cab marna she urged my treat please no no said marna in a strained voice i'll not do that a five-cent ride in the car will take me almost to my door and besides the cars are warm which is an advantage it was understood tacitly that kate was the protector and the one who wouldn't mind being on the street alone 
they had but a moment to wait for marna's car but in that moment kate was thinking how terrible it would be for marna in her worn evening gown to be crowded into that common conveyance and tormented with those futile regrets which must be her so numerous companions she was not surprised when marna snatched her hand crying oh kate yes yes i know murmured kate soothingly no you don't retorted marna how can you it's it's the milk there was a catch in her voice the milk echoed kate blankly what milk i thought oh i know marna cried impatiently you thought i was worrying about the old opera and that i wanted to be in there behind that screen stabbing myself well of course knowing the score so well and having hoped once to do so much with it the notes did rather try to jump out of my throat but goodness what does all that matter it's the baby's milk that i'm carrying on about i don't believe i told george to warm it her voice ceased in a wail the car swung around the corner and kate half lifted marna up the huge step and saw her go reeling down the aisle as the cumbersome vehicle lurched forward then she turned her own steps toward the stairs of the elevated station the milk she ejaculated with commingled tenderness and impatience then that's why she didn't say anything about going behind the scenes i thought it was because she couldn't endure the old surroundings and the pity of her associates of the opera days the milk i wonder what she wondered she did not precisely say but more than one person on the crowded elevated train noticed that the handsome woman in black velvet it really was velveteen purchased at a bargain had something on her mind End of chapter twenty four